today I would like to ask you to meet me, yes, uh, I'd like to ask you to meet me in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. Nehemiah was a man that uh, God used in the Persian Empire. He was a Hebrew uh, serving the king in Persia, and God tapped him and sent him to Jerusalem to rebuild and reconstitute the people of God there about 450 years before the life of Christ. And we're going to read these verses that talk about um, what Nehemiah did to rebuild in the broken places. In fact, now would be a good time to tell you what the title of our message is. It's rebuilding in the broken places. Say that with me. Rebuilding in the broken places. One more time. Rebuilding in the broken places. Amen. So I went to Jerusalem. That's Nehemiah. And was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what God, what my God, had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. And then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in. And how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that it had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word. Amen. Rebuilding in the broken places. 
I, I wonder, is there anyone here old enough to have ever been inside either tower of the World Trade Center? I mean, have you ever actually been there? Yeah, yeah, a few of us. Uh, Sarah and I went to New York City in 1981. We were students. We were in a college music group. And there was a missionary convention where our group sang, and there was a day of touring. And so on that day, I, I went up one of the towers to the observation floor. I don't really recall much more than that. And so when we heard about the attack and the collapse, it was kind of surreal. One of those memories. Wow, I was there. I was there. And today you go to the 9-11 Memorial and Museum, and there you will see artifacts. Uh, wallets, posters, credit cards, library cards, driver's licenses. And these items were once everyday personal effects. The world gave no thought to them. They, they were belongings tucked into to purses or pockets, but now they're, they're museum artifacts. That's what they are. And each a piece of evidence of a life once lived. I, I was surprised again to be reminded that only 20 people were rescued alive from the rubble in the two days after the attack. And in fact, just a few days ago, I learned that uh, two more uh, victims were identified from the remains. Uh, broken places. Uh, it took nine months. 3.1 million hours of labor to haul out the 1.8 million tons of rubble at the cost of $750 million dollars. The broken places. The broken places. Today's text is about broken places. Did, did you hear that? It's about rebuilding in broken places. Nehemiah inspects the ruins of Jerusalem by moonlight. And I just wonder, I just wonder if he found any artifacts of Jerusalem's former life. I just wonder if he saw any evidence of pre-exile Jerusalem. Bone fragments, pottery shards, rusted metal, anything that resembled life before the Babylonians came and utterly destroyed that place. What, what had once been a vibrant city had become a cemetery, a ghost town of rubble that had once been the fortified wall of the city of David. And Nehemiah has come to rebuild. God sent him there. God sent him there. But before he rebuilds, some hard work has to be done. Rubble has to be hauled out. Jesus said, that old wineskins can't keep new wine. Their inflexible leather skins will burst. 
And as I read these verses, I just wonder if our text is more than just the story of their lives. I wonder, I wonder if it's the story of our lives. I really do. Anybody here feeling broken today? Anyone here living amidst ruins and rubble? Well, what does it take to rebuild? What does it take to rebuild in the broken places? I think we can see in these verses some, a word from God. And, and it's, so it's simply this. It's, it's our big idea. Rebuilding in the broken places takes wise leadership and total spiritual surrender. That's where I'm going today. Wise leadership and total spiritual surrender. I'll warn you. I'll warn you. This first part is easy. I mean, it's easy to talk about. Second part, not so much. But follow me anyway. And let's first consider wise leadership. Rebuilding in the broken places takes wise leadership now let me define that what do we mean by wise leadership well i mean it's straightforward in these verses you'll see this what does wise leadership do here it is you're going to love this wise leadership takes a nap amen 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 now, now not take a nap right now you can save that for this afternoon that's after lunch okay Take another sip of coffee. Stay with me here. <laughs> Wise leadership takes a nap, does your homework, uses we, not I, and expects opposition. That's what these verses mean. That's what we see in verses 11 through 20. After months of persevering prayer, God launched Nehemiah on a 1,000-mile journey from the spectacular urban palace of Susa and after nearly two months of travel he arrives at a broken down Persian outpost it's it's Jerusalem it's a territory of the Persian Empire now they're not its own country they're in a they're in a place called the it's literally it's titled the the name of the province is the province beyond the river that's how kind of generic it is huh city of David is now relegated to this province beyond the river name and jerusalem's a shell of its former life there's not even a motel six there, there there's not it just you know just there's just it the governor's house is a wreck he, he's in a tent for all we know and on his arrival, look at verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Three days. Now, almost every commentary that I consulted about this passage notes that the three days was three days unpacking and getting acclimated to his surroundings and getting his workspace organized, uh, kind of getting the lay of the landscape. But most importantly, all these commentaries, they talk about the importance of rest resting doesn't sound like a very important detail but believe me it is take a nap take a nap Nehemiah, Nehemiah's passion for God led him to take seriously the principle of Sabbath rest 
And I'm not just trying to fit a verse into a particular thought because if you go to Nehemiah chapter 13, he enforces the Sabbath law in Jerusalem after God's people had just become a, a lax in this. No, Nehemiah is taking this Sabbath rest principle because Sabbath rest is an identity marker for the people of God. Sabbath rest is grounded in creation. God created six days and then rested. But God did not rest because he was tired. He rested to set a rhythm. The rhythm of Sabbath rest reminded Israel that they had been slaves 400 years when there was no rest at all. And therefore weekly... Israel was to recall how God rescued them from back-breaking, bone-crushing, workaholic labor. Weekly, they were required, along with every non-citizen and servant and work animal, to rest, to acknowledge their limitations and stand in awe of God's limitless power. Rest. Take a nap, church. <laughs> Listen, you, you know science is still scratching its head trying to figure out why we humans need sleep. Seriously. Seri and here's where the Bible helps. Because sleep is a daily reminder from God that we're not God. Psalm 121.4 says, He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. But Israel will. We're not God. So once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. And that sickness is the chronic tendency to think that we are in control and that our work is indispensable. And so to cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. He does. Uh, sleep is a parable that God is God and we are just mere people. And, and you know what? God handles the world quite nicely while the hemisphere sleeps. So sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Don't let this lesson be lost here. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and who never sleeps. And he's not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with peaceful, restful trust. The kind of trust that casts all our anxieties upon him and sleeps yeah, when we're fatigued our, our judgment suffers when we're fatigued our quality of work diminishes when we're fatigued our resistance to sin weakens and our efficiency wanes when we're fatigued our conflict resolution skills deteriorate and listen activity and spirituality are not necessarily the same, church. And Nehemiah is going to be plenty busy in the upcoming days. 
And Sabbath rest reminds him and us that our God can be trusted. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Can we trust God to make up for lost work on one day by blessing us the other six? And can we trust that this burden that we're carrying is not ours to carry alone? Hmm. Nehemiah exercises wise leadership. Take a nap. Take a nap. Take a nap. Do your homework. So after Nehemiah took a nap, he got up. And he mounted a donkey or a mule Oh, and he had some helpers with him. And by moonlight, they quietly inspected the city walls. One commentator titled this section, Nehemiah's Encounter with Reality. Now, I want to show you a map of what Israel looked like before the exile. You see, there, there's a city there on the right. That's, that's, that is Jerusalem. But then on this left section here uh, in highlight is that's really what pre-exile Jerusalem was. It was a much larger section and then the Babylonians came and the cities contracted and post-exile it's a smaller city and so Nehemiah's night ride begins at a place called the Valley Gate and in verses 13 to 15, we just see what he inspected. He, scripture says he started at the valley gate and then passed along a place called the dragon gate and then the dung gate. That's where the city's garbage and refuse was taken and burned. And, and then he went by the fountain gate and the king's pool uh, and found that there was so much rubble and ruin that the pathway was obstructed. He found a section of the wall irreparable. Apparently the wall had been built on that side on top of terracing. And when the terracing had collapsed, so did any foundation for the wall. So Nehemiah would have to build up on higher ground. It's very simple. Nehemiah is doing his homework before he goes public, before he invites Israel to rebuild, before he finalizes the supply list, before he labors with the people to begin a new chapter. Nehemiah has to personally study the situation. There's nothing innovative or fancy about it, church. Just do your homework. Be where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. Be prepared. Know your material. Jesus taught about this in Luke chapter 14, verses 28 and 29. He said, which of you wishing to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost to see if he has the resources to complete it? Otherwise, if he lays the foundation and is unable to finish the work, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this man could not finish what he started to build. So Nehemiah wants to finish what he starts. And in order to do that, he needs to be rested, and then he needs to study the situation. He needs to encounter reality. He needs to actually examine the broken places. 
And did you notice in verse 16, it says that, that he was careful to keep quiet about his intentions. You see, nobody really even knows why he's in Jerusalem. I mean, he's, all they know is this Persian dude with an armed guard has come into town. What's this all about? He's not talking because he doesn't want to sabotage the project before it even gets off the ground. He knows that there are enemies. He doesn't want to overpromise and underdeliver. That's just that's just solid leadership, wise leadership. And more and more church family, I'm becoming persuaded that the best leaders aren't those with magnetic charismatic personalities. Because you see the charm of personality can create an environment where people tell you what you want to hear instead of what you need to know. And the charm of personality can create an environment where people begin to filter brutal facts from you because they don't want to deal with your backlash. But hear me. Listen to me now on this. The moment leaders allow themselves to become the primary reality that people worry about, instead of reality being the primary reality, that's not good. Winston Churchill in World War II once said, facts are better than dreams. And of course leadership deals with vision, but leadership is also about creating a climate where the truth is heard. And I'm talking about independent truth that exists outside of us. I'm not talking about constructed truth. I'm talking about capital T truth, where truth is heard and brutal facts are faced. Nehemiah's leadership was not about coming down the mountain with some mystical vision from on high and then selling that messianic vision to Jerusalem. Rather, Nehemiah had the humility to acknowledge that he did not understand everything and therefore he went on a fact-finding mission for the best solutions. I don't know what specific questions Nehemiah asked his squad on that nighttime inspection, but in my sanctified imagination, it may have included questions like, what are you seeing? Guys, talk to me. What are you seeing? Can you help me understand? What should we be concerned about? What about this situation can't be ignored at this time? Tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more. Does your influence of any way, shape, or form promote that kind of openness? If so, you're wise. If not, not so much. Really, it's important. Nehemiah's night ride is what you might call an autopsy without blame. And, you know, we're told in these verses of one night ride. Would it surprise you if had there been more? See, this is wise leadership. Take a nap. Do your homework. And then and only then did Nehemiah speak publicly to the community at large? That's in verse 17, you see? He talks to the nobles and the priests and the officials and the Jews and the rest who were to do the work. He talks to them. And the first words out of his mouth. Do you see that? First words. You see the trouble we are in. 
Use we, not I. Oh, Nehemiah is a masterful diplomat, huh? He didn't say, well, I'm here. I've come all this way to help you people out. I order supplies. I'll be here by Monday. You start Tuesday. I'll be in my office if you need anything. You're welcome. No. <laughs> no. no you, that's funny, except that some of us may know of folks like that. See? Oh, man. But Nehemiah identifies with his people group. Listen to what he says. We are in trouble let us rebuild that we may no longer suffer derision can you hear him nehemiah comes not as an envoy of persia but as a hebrew brother belonging to the elect people of god and he appeals he appeals to his family Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, we don't have to live this way forever. We don't. As the elect of God, we, let us face the brutal facts of our current reality. And here are the brutal facts. This is going to be really hard, and our God is really good. Amen. Amen. This is hard. God is good. This is hard. God is good. True then is true now. Amen. This is hard. God is good. And in verse 18, Nehemiah tells his personal story. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Can you feel that power? That, that is the power of a personal testimony and a personal testimony has the power to overcome bad arguments and every argument is bad when it's against God so don't be intimidated you tell your story about what Jesus did for you and Nehemiah's story is simple I'm not here because I'm an effective persuader and I'm not here because the queen was a compliant helper and I'm not here because the king was a generous benefactor. I'm here because our God is a sovereign provider. Amen? I serve the God who hears. That's 2 verse 4. I serve the God who guides. That's 2 verse 8. I serve the God who instructs. That's 2 verse 12. And I serve the God who sustains. That's 2 verse 20. See, Nehemiah is going to give God the credit. He credits God before he credits the king. This whole chapter is about Nehemiah's awareness of God's initiating activity. And from Nehemiah's point of view, God is not distant. He's near. He's close. He's active. He's at hand. And so then no wonder then, no wonder then why, why the people respond in verse 18. Let us rise up and build. That's wise leadership, church. It's a, it's a leadership that knows how to take a nap. Leadership knows to do homework. Leadership knows to say we, not I. And leadership that knows to expect pushback. Expect pushback. 
Yeah, that's verse 19. Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, those rascals, those enemies of God's people. Judah has been their territory, but not anymore. There's a new sheriff in town. Nehemiah's there, and he's not going to yield jurisdiction. And so immediately they begin a smear campaign, calling Nehemiah and the Jewish people rebels. But we know that's not true. We know, and they knew it too. The king fully authorized Nehemiah for the work. And yet, and yet, what does the text say? <laughs> Nehemiah doesn't appeal to Artaxerxes. Instead, he appeals to the God of heaven, doesn't he? And he doesn't argue with him. He doesn't even show the paperwork. He just states a fact. We're going to build on this land that God has given us, and you have no jurisdiction. You have no authority. Nehemiah uninvites those who have no interest in helping God's mission and God's people. And whenever the people of God do the work of God, there's always going to be enemies of God. And that's why Nehemiah teaches us to give our best energy to the work and not to negativity. He does not have time to chase down every rumor. He's focused on the work. Wise leadership. Take a nap. Do your homework. Use we, not I. Expect pushback. That's the job. That's the job. And that's the, that's the, that's the leadership side of rebuilding in broken places. Hmm. Now let me just tell you something about us pastors. <laughs> we pastor types, we like to talk leadership points from Nehemiah like this chapter here. We like to stand up on stage and envision ourselves as a type of Nehemiah looking out to Israel there and lead. Nehemiah's a leader. We're leaders. Nehemiah did this. We should too. Oh, people, rest. Do your homework. Use we, not I. Expect pushback. That's the recipe. Go thou and do likewise. <laughs> if I sound like a cynic, well, it's because we haven't told the whole sermon. See? See, I said that there were two components to rebuilding broken places. And there's no doubt, let me be very clear, these are timeless principles. And your leadership will improve if you put those four principles into practice. They will. But I believe that there's more in this text you see, some of us do see ourselves as Nehemiah because we have that role. That's wonderful. But many of us are here feeling like the city of Jerusalem. We enter worship and our lives consist of broken down walls, heaps of rubble, and piles of irreparable ruins. We feel like September 12th, 
2001. And we wonder, we wonder, is this as good as it gets? And the good news of these verses is this, church family, your life can be rebuilt. Our lives can be rebuilt. That we are here means we are not a lost cause. Would you just sit in that for a minute? That we are here means that we're not a lost cause. Some of you are here today and you feel like you're a lost cause. But I'm here to give you some good news today. Broken lives can be rebuilt with wise leadership. And broken lives can be rebuilt with total spiritual surrender. Total surrender. And what that means, church family, is that we must admit that we are powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors and that our lives have become unmanageable. What that means is confessing that only Jesus can rescue and restore us. It means admitting to God, to ourselves, and another person the exact nature of our wrongs. It means coming clean. It means letting someone in your life who can dig around the broken places. So Nehemiah helps us see the importance of a discreet examination of broken places, our broken places. Places that you'd really rather people not rummage around or know about or see. I mean, the last place I want Nehemiah inspecting is a place where the garbage gets taken out. And yet, that's what he does not leave out in these verses. These verses help us understand how important it is for wisdom to inspect our lives and see it for what it is. To conduct an autopsy without blame. And total surrender means being entirely ready to have God remove all of our character defects. And notice I did not say be ready to make myself different. That's God's work, not mine. It's God's work to make me different by giving me what it takes to change. It's my job to act and behave like the change has already occurred. Faith is becoming the person whom God says I am. So are you willing to believe, are we willing to believe that Jesus can make us different? So, So I didn't say, do you want to give up this sin? That's not the question. <laughs> See, it's possible to abstain from sin and then make everybody else miserable in your striving to abstain. <laughs> you know what I mean. The question is, do we want to be different? Do we want God to remake us into a new person? When Christ changed the apostle Paul The old was gone. Behold, all things are new. That's the offer. Christ did that. Paul surrendered. There it is. And my prayer for us, beloved, is that we might be a place 
where discreet inspection of ruins can occur, a place where men and women and children can enter this space and open their hearts and confess, God, I have sinned. I have hurt others. I renounce that way of life. I want to be different and say it without fear that those words are going to be used against us or repeated in loose-lipped conversations or gossip sessions. In Psalm 32, David said, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Can our church be a place where people acknowledge their sin and then trust that God will just haul it out and take it. Can, can we be a James 5, 16 church? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. And then James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Can we be a place where the righteous pray fervently so that healing and rebuilding can take place. Can we be that place? Can we? Let's be that place. Listen, listen. <laughs> We're available in the fireside room for prayer, but listen, we believe in the priesthood of the believers here at the church. So you get together with another brother or sister after services, either here or elsewhere, and you talk and you pray and you acknowledge, and you celebrate. You celebrate. You see, this can be a place where cleansed and acquitted people can lovingly surround the wounded and those who are weary and need healing and be a wall of safety. A wall. I think there's something about that in these verses. Psalm 32 says, You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Oh, that we might be a church, that the, that the members of the body would just surround the wounded and just say, God has delivered us in Christ. He's delivered us in Christ. Believe that, believe that. Nehemiah is not just trying to fix something so that he can sell a book on how he fixed it. And now you can too. <laughs> He's trying to build a city of hope. And I don't have it in me to do it. But he does. God does. Your life can be rebuilt. Nehemiah's entire premise in coming is his conviction that God can rebuild broken lives. He would not have come had he not believed this. Hear me. What God did then, He can do now. He can rebuild your marriage. He can rebuild your career. He can rebuild your hope. He can rebuild a nation. He can rebuild. Rebuilding broken lives is what God does best. And this calls for total surrender. And frankly, people usually aren't ready to become different until the pain of living the same old way becomes greater than the fear of change. So, have you heard enough? This, this calls for total surrender. 
And here's the deal. Here's the deal. And it's, and it's really beautiful when we, when we really think about this. We won't know in this life what we will fully look like when God does all the rebuilding He wants to do. Oh, I, I know that we will look more and more like Jesus. Yes, yes, of course. But looking, what looking like Jesus exactly is ultimately remains to be seen. So, so we don't come to church and read our Bibles and pray and give and live in community just to keep from doing something bad. Instead, it's because we believe that God is rebuilding us into someone that we're still trying to fully understand. That, that's, that's what the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 2. We are God's children now, now, but what we will be has, yet, has not yet appeared. See what I'm saying? But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Oh, man, that's hope. Those are possibilities. And notice it's in the future tense, and it means this. There is a tomorrow. There is a tomorrow, and it will take time to get there. So rebuilding our broken worlds will take longer than we think it will. So don't waste your energies fixated on what you've lost or how much time or effort it'll take to recoup what's been lost or trying to defend yourself. Rather, spend your energies focusing on core questions like, God, what caused this rubble in the first place? And what do I need to own? And how can I continually repent? And repentance means changing directions. Repentance is not simply an a one-time event. It's every morning. God, I set my face to you. I, f- I set my face to you. I set my face to you. There is a tomorrow. And change happens one day at a time. Be patient. <laughs> that's what's in these verses. And that's really meaningful. Rebuilding in the broken places takes wise leadership and total surrender and these verses offer hope because there did come another leader after nehemiah of the greater nehemiah who delivered us from the rubble from which we could not claw out of you see the good news is that god worked his salvation in jesus christ who came not just at the risk of death but with the certainty of death And outside the city of Jerusalem, the very city that Nehemiah rebuilt, Jesus himself became rubble for you and for me so that we could have new life in Christ. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. Thanks be to God. Amen.